We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. And we chop that up into little chunks. And we coat half of those chunks with coconut oil so they stay crunchy. And then half of the chunks we don't coat so they kind of melt in. So you have this little pocket of gooey caramel. You have this crunchy piece of honeycomb. And then you have the less sweet but still sweet, rich creme anglaise base to sort of neutralize. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. On this episode, I catch up with Ben Van Leeuwen, the co-founder of a namesake chain of ice cream shops and freezer section staples. I invited Ben on to talk about what inspires his exacting, hyper-creative flavors. We also talk about the ups and downs that come with running a growing consumer food brand. Don't like ice cream? Well, what the f*** is wrong with you? But if you really don't like ice cream, you should stick around anyways and hear about one of the more inspiring stories in food. Ben Van Leeuwen, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I think we maybe met when you served me a cone in 2008. I was at your truck. What flavor? Uh, Definitely chocolate. That's always my go-to number one. Awesome. It was a yellow truck, I believe. Yes. Take us back to 2008. What was the craft ice cream scene like at this moment when you were launching a brand that I love? I'm just going to say straight up, you're invited here because I love your product. There's a lot of ice cream out there, a lot of people who want to talk about ice cream. I love what you guys do, but what was it like when you were launching? When we launched Van Leeuwen in 2008, there were very few brands. If I went into Whole Foods or a specialty grocery store, I could count on one hand the small local, quote, unquote, artisanal brands. Today, there are dozens and dozens in every single region. Um, Mm -hmm. Super exciting, but um, small doesn't always mean better necessarily. Yeah, yep, yep. I mean, when you were starting... Van Leeuwen, did you think it would be big? Did you think you could actually make it to a big, viable business? So when we were starting Van Leeuwen, the vision was just to do ice cream trucks. We had no vision of wholesale. We had no vision for retail brick-and-mortar scoop shops. But on day one, somebody from Whole Foods came up to the truck, and we were excited to get any sales we could. They said, would you like to sell to Whole Foods? We said, yes. Absolutely. Three months later, we had product on the shelf there. That does not happen anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Super rare. There weren't as many CPG brands emerging then trying to get shelf space. Um, By no means did that make to get where we are today very easy. And How do we make it work? It's super hard. So the scoop shop model, highly profitable. Nice margin in there. You know, Mm -hmm. it's six bucks for an ice cream cone. Um, Very little labor. labor. Rent. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, compared to a full-service restaurant, exactly. our labor costs are lower. Exactly. Um, the CPG channel, so selling in grocery stores, mm-hmm. Whole Foods, Walmart, Sprouts, you know, great partners. The margins are super low. Um, so how do we make it work? Um, right now, financing it um, because we want to grow and make it bigger. Yeah. We kind of passed the point of no return with... If we sold to a few hundred grocery stores, it would work. Yeah. It's hard to be at like 
five to 10,000 stores and make it work financially. So you kind of have to get to like 20 or 30,000 stores. So that's wow. kind of in that middle place right now. So you're trying to get to 20,000. Where are your big channels right now that you're selling? Um, our, our biggest channels are Whole Foods, Sprouts, Walmart. Yeah. Um, and then in New York City, which is an incredible market, the tri-state area, yeah. small stores. But this is one of the only markets in the country where you can do a lot of revenue off hundreds or maybe yeah. even a few thousand small independent grocery stores. I assume that you make a lot of your money between May and September. And I want to ask you straight up if this is true, because for me, I don't want to talk about ice cream only during May through September. I hate that it is only in the summer, but do you make most of your money in the summertime? Yes. So mm. every, almost every person I meet tells me that they eat ice cream all year round and that they go to the shops in January just as much in July. No, in I, January, I didn't say that he, no, no, I, I did not say that. <laughs> but, but but many people tell me that. And our sales in January compared to July are down sixty five percent. And okay. scoop shops in every market. Yeah. Um. So I still can't reconcile that. <laughs> no, I, I mean visiting a scoop shop is yeah. different. I'm talking about when I'm at Target yeah. and I'm oh, like checking yeah. the freezers. The, yeah. the CPG business isn't isn't affected so much by seasonality okay. for ice cream. That's because I wanted to know, we've written about vegan ice cream, we'll talk about your brand, but is it a year-round food for everyone that I assume like like ice cream is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, less for the scoop shops, yeah, but yeah, yeah. in the grocery channel, consistent sales year-round. Interesting. We've also seen with the scoop shops, whether you're in New York City or Los Angeles, winter is winter. Mm -hmm. So in Los Angeles, when it's 50 degrees outside, they eat ice cream like it's 20 degrees outside yep. in New York. Definitely know some scoop owners in in, in L.A. My, my friend Matt used to run a, a Scoops. Do you know that brand, yeah. Scoops? Yeah. Used to run one of those great ice cream shops. Cool. Um, I have to ask you about Halo Top right from the jump. We've written about Halo Top. I Back in the 2017, we called it the summer of Halo Top, and it felt like a seismic shift in ice cream, this low-calorie, eat-the-whole-pint moment. It seems to have passed, but for you as a running a very prominent brand in America, what was that like? Were you shitting your pants? Sure. Um, when Halo Top launched and did so extraordinarily well revenue-wise right away, I was jealous. I yeah. was envious. I was probably angry. Um, you know, and that, that's all ego, right? Yeah. They generated probably 200 times our wholesale revenue in mm -hmm. two years, and we'd been in business 10 years. Um <laughs> But in reality, and, and now that I've sort of taken a step back and slightly matured, it's it's not what we do. You know, we've never been a better-for-you ice cream brand. We'll never be a better-for-you ice cream brand. It's just – it's not what gets us excited. Um, our, our tagline is a life without anything good is bad. And yeah. it, it's really genuine to us. And what we mean is like if you're going to do dessert, do it right. Like mm -hmm. go all the way. Like there's – Tons of really delicious, healthy foods. Lentil sure. soup, avocado toast. Um, uh, Fans of both. Sardine sandwich. Um, Ooh, so, so we, big. Yeah, so we just, we don't understand trying to make a watered-down version of dessert that you can eat a pint of every day. Yeah. Like, why that's a thing. But some people like it. And certainly if you're, you know, diabetic or can't have sugar. I, think I agree. Great. There are some health restrictions. Yeah. Same with vegan, too. But I, I, has that kind of fad faded a bit? The the low-calorie, very light, aerated ice cream or well, quote-unquote ice cream? What's interesting, the, the better-for-you products are cyclical. But, like, yeah. the better-for-you attributes are what f come and go. So mm. I think in the 80s it was fro low-fat frozen yogurt. Sure. You know, and sugar was fine. Nobody was talking about that. <laughs> right. Um, when Halo Top came along, it was, you know, low-calorie. Um, and now it's 
still low sugar, but more keto, but now keto is fading. So they kind of go up and down. Um, but we also, I, I, I don't want to apply better for you to ice cream. Ice cream, we don't think is supposed to be good for mm-hmm. you other than for your emotional health. In right? free, yeah, it's right. supposed to make you feel good, be happy. And like a scoop of really good ice cream that's 18% butter fat, 8% egg yolks, you know, no stabilizers made with mm-hmm. sun-cured Tahitian vanilla beans truly makes me happy in a very deep lasting way i mean mm-hmm. maybe it lasts like five hours yeah it has like a little bit of a halo <laughs> yeah. effect no pun intended with halo top but it, it, when you eat ice cream you feel great um i love what you say I, I agree with you fully i i liked eating a pint and not like feeling like bad just in terms of physically because it was you know eating a full pint of full fat ice cream can you know feel a little heavy um not to say i haven't done it obviously <laughs> um but I, I wonder I wonder the future of that that category. You've articulated it well. So I want to go back to your your past because um, I I really want to talk about Dressler. You worked at this restaurant, Dressler, before you started ice cream. And you were a server there. Can we talk about it for a sec? I've never actually yeah. talked to anyone about Dressler. Very important restaurant. I feel like the burger at Dressler was like one of the first burgers in Brooklyn to be written about. It was amazing. Um, Dressler was one of the only Michelin star restaurants in Brooklyn at that time. Maybe the first Michelin star restaurant in Brooklyn. Might be wrong on that. I worked there for, I think it was five or six months. It was one of the best jobs I ever had. I loved it. I loved mm-hmm. everyone I worked with. But I was fired from Dressler. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, how, they, they, they weren't mean about it. One night, we had a big table, and they were the last table. And I put two quails in instead of three. And by uh, the time the mistake was caught, the kitchen was closed, and and they fired. That was the the wow. I feel I was, I was so sad. I was actually yeah. so sad. But that really sort of put the lit the fire under me to get going on the Van Leeuwen ice cream business plan. So it was probably a good thing. So you were fired from Dressler for this air, which I think in this labor market probably would not get you fired. Oh, definitely, probably not. not. Um, and then you started making ice cream at that moment where you – because did you go to culinary school? What's your culinary background? No, the plan was already in place. So I had worked front of house since I was a kid. Yeah. I think my first job my, – my first non-like mowing lawn mm-hmm. job was at a snack bar on the beach working the cash register. Which beach? Um, Greenwich Point where I grew up in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Todd's Point it's called. Yeah. Then I went to college and in San Francisco worked at a restaurant – um, in upstate New York, where I transferred to Skidmore College, mm. I worked at a really good bakery called Mrs. London's. Mm. And Michael and Wendy London, who ran that place, started that place, were using Celtic sea salt biodynamic flour from mm. wheat grown in North Dakota. And they got me even more excited about it. They were really educating you as a young s- server about so, what was going on in better food. So much. And... What really got me excited, though, was tasting this stuff. You know, you read about what the difference between balsamic vinegar is and real balsamic vinegar or cloth-bound cheddar and the more industrial-produced cheddar. It's cool to hear about it, but the taste experience is what, you know, remains – the taste experience remains what keeps me excited about sort of working in food and, Mm -hmm. you know, finding ways to present really good, distinctively good products to – Okay. And fast forward to ice cream. It seemed when you launched, you were launching with a lot of this ethic, which maybe wasn't that common. We were certainly knew about Haagen-Dazs, which to me is the closest cognate between you and a, a national brand. But then there's like the stoner brands, like the Ben & Jerry's of the world, the Mixin brands, which I think has a serious fan base. Not, I'm not slighting it at all. I've loved Chunky Monkey 
more than once, but I feel like you were thinking about purity of flavor. Is this, this is my read, but what you, you respond to that. hundred percent. Um, in many ways we were like young and arrogant, <laughs> um, no mix in. So no flavors had any chunks except for mint chip. You know, there was no cookies and cream. There was no cookie dough. There was no chocolate fudge brownie. Mm. So we obsessively sourced the best possible yeah. ingredients we could find, many of which we still use. So pistachios from Bronte, Sicily, um, strawberries at that time were from France, but now they're from Oregon, but ripened on the plant. Mm. Um, at that time, it was oak barrel aged vanilla extract. Um, yeah. And, and it was an awesome way to do things, but I think we we weren't thinking about our guests enough um, and thinking about what they wanted. And when we started thinking more about that, we started selling a lot more ice cream. We, we did well at first. You know, mm-hmm. people were really excited about the products. But one of the biggest things, the biggest mistakes we made was our sugar level was really low at first. Not a low sugar ice cream, but we were at like 11%. Um, and I like desserts that are less sweet, but the market wants a little I, more I have sugar. to admit, when you <laughs> launched, I used the word muted. I felt the flavors were, they were delicate. And I think for ice cream, it can be challenging, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. People are really used to that, like, 135 to 14.5% sugar level in, in a high-fat ice cream. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And so you're the, uh, you're, you've got partners in this business, and but you are the one creating the flavors, right? You're like part of that team. It's a group effort. Cool, I mean, cool. I oversee what we call research and development cool. and then commercialization. So figuring out how to make those flavors at scale. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it really is a group effort between my co-founders and I, our commercialization team, our marketing team, yeah. our sales team our retail team. Um, so it's looking at data, it's working in the stores, it's talking to customers. Um, it's, it's, it's less having a brilliant, super creative idea because those flavor, or when I, when I say super creative, I mean a really unusual. Yeah. Esoteric. Cause there's those, a scale. Those don't move. Yeah. yeah. We've tried, we, before we looked at the data, we had a lot of those flavors on our menu. Yeah. And when we started looking at the velocities, we said, Oh, the, Fijian fresh turmeric with coconut sugar, coffee caramel shortbread isn't moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't sell itself on the board. I'll tell you that. I mean, right now in your shops, and how many how many locations do you have? We have thirty eight locations. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., how many states? In seven states. Seven states. Now, what's the what's the like what's the one that moves the fast the, the highest velocity? What's the flavor of choice? Honeycomb. Wow. Yeah, honeycomb. That's cool. It is a great flavor. I like honeycomb a lot. No, I mean, why? why what, what, does that, what does that say? Um, I mean, it's similar to caramel. Sure. But you've got a wonderful contrast. So you have the custard base, milk, cream, mm-hmm. cane, sugar, egg yolks with a touch of vanilla. And then you have this caramelized, um, in our case, it's tapioca and brown rice syrup, caramelized sodium bicarbonate added, puffs up. And we chop that up into little chunks and we coat half of those chunks with coconut oil so they yeah. stay crunchy. And then half of the chunks we don't coat so they kind of melt in. So you have this little pocket of gooey caramel. You have this crunchy piece of honeycomb. And then you have the less sweet but still sweet, rich creme anglaise base to sort of yeah. neutralize that. So I think that, I mean, it's sugar and fat it's right? i mean <laughs> when you melt on a form. when you melt on a pint it's creme anglaise let's yeah. get real i mean it's the beautiful part about ice cream um 
let's stick with the conversation about the the shops because there is definitely delineation between the two businesses. It's clear now. We'll get to a little bit more about the CPG. But right now, um, I want to know in terms of flavor development for these shops, what has been like the biggest surprise hit recently? And I have to ask the second part, what has like been the biggest bomb? Because I I really got to know. Sure. One of the most surprising hits was a sake kasu flavor that we did. Um, we did it twice in the past couple years. So sake kasu is the byproduct of sake making. Yeah. It's um, basically like a fermented rice porridge. Yeah. And we wanted to add that to the vegan ice cream because what vegan dairy or vegan dairy unquote yeah. products always lack for me is that depth of flavor. You can get the fat, you can get the texture, but that really deep flavor. So we were like, we don't want these fancy new like manufactured versions of yeah. dairy. We want to like use fermentation. So we added that to the ice cream. Um, people really liked it. So that was a, that, that was a surprise hit. Um, something that I thought would do really well, which it did not do that well. is called raspberry layer cake. Um, I made it a little, does it have chocolate weird. in it? No chocolate. See, that's, I'm yeah. thinking right away you need chocolate with raspberry, but that's just yeah, It has elderflower extract and, ah. um, a little bit of orange peel essence and i think the floral notes put a lot of people off um Mm -hmm. i really i love those i love the sort of indian and middle eastern desserts Mm -hmm. with that with those floral flavors in them but i've been trying to sell them for almost two decades it's never really hitting what what does hit what's what what, outside of honeycomb are there other flavors that really are big they're obvious vanilla cookies and cream chocolate fudge brownie mint chip the earl gray tea is a sleeper hit, actually. Yeah. That one went on as a special, unusual-sounding flavor, one of our best sellers, not only in our scoop shops, but across the country. Whole Foods, Sprouts, I think it does pretty well in Walmart as well. I've not tried it. I'm going yeah. to have to hit that up. Um, she'll be our producer. It's her flavor of choice. Yep. Um, now, let me ask you about weight, because you pick up a pint of ice cream in the grocery store, and you notice there's different weights. Like, Breyers is always different from Van Leeuwen, which weighs different than Ben & Jerry's. What does that mean exactly? Why does some ice cream have is lighter than heavier ice cream? So overrun refers to the amount of air that's pumped overrun, into ice cream. That's the key word. So if you have a twenty percent overrun, it means you started with a gallon of ice cream and you end up with one point two gallons. The mm. more overrun you put into the ice cream, the more you're increasing the volume of the mix. So it's one attribute that will affect the mouthfeel and eating experience on ice cream. Um, generally, the higher the overrun, the cheaper and lower quality ice cream. The lower the overrun, the more premium the ice cream mm-hmm. is. But it's not that clear cut. So in Italian style ice cream called you know gelato, which just means ice cream in Italian, mm-hmm. is usually very low fat, no egg yolks, tons of stabilizers. And it has a super low overrun Mm. because there isn't as much fat. And then it's served at a much higher temperature. Um, Our ice cream is going to be higher overrun than a gelato around Haagen-Dazs overrun. Mm. Um, But we actually want – we want more air than gelato because we're we're at 18% butterfat depending on the flavor, 5 to 8% egg Mm -hmm. yolks. So we want a fluffiness because it's just too rich when you're that high in fat and – in that high in eggs, like to me, you couldn't eat enough 
it, you know, you couldn't really have a full cone if it was a super low overrun. Interesting. So weight is not necessarily going to be an indicator of quality. It's an indicator of quality on the extreme ends. Extreme, because like, Briars like, um, is tiny. Yeah, Briars is going to be, you know, certainly yummy. I mean, we yeah. say like all ice cream is good, but yeah. yummy, but it's not going to give you that really luxurious experience. Really, all ice cream is good. Yeah. But but I guess what I mean is like between 20 and 35% overrun. Yeah. 20 isn't necessarily better than 35. It would kind of depend on the fat of the product and how you want to do that. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I when I pick up a pint, I'm I'm thinking weight means better, but I'm you've you've informed me, you've changed my opinion, I feel. This is cool. You want to look at solids. Uh, yeah. Okay. So look at the I mean, if you count the grams on the nutritionals and divide that by the total grams, mm-hmm. that'll tell you your total solids. solids. So that's a big indicator Interesting. too. Do you uh, get to travel for research? I feel like you've you've mentioned many parts of the world that inspire your flavors. And if you walk into a Van Loon scoop shop, you're, you're seeing the world in front of you on the board. Are, do, you, do you get to do that kind of work? I don't travel specifically to research flavors. Um, I wish I did. That sounds like yeah. a great idea, Matt. I want to start doing that. No. But, but, but certainly traveling does... Um, inspire ideas. I think right now I'm, I'm so interested in, uh, the scoop shop model and ways to innovate, not only what we're serving there, but how we're serving things. So my partners and I are talking about visiting places in other countries that are maybe doing things in different ways. Yeah. Seeing if we can get ideas from that. Is the business still a big grind for you? I mean, there's no easy days. I mean, you're, this seems like a full time um, thing. no, there, there's easy days. There's hard days. Um, I mean, more money, more problems. Yeah, they say. Uh, yeah. And it's true. I mean, if a refrigerator breaks, I don't know about that anymore. Okay. Um, and I, you know, even six years ago, I knew about every single piece of equipment we had in the entire fleet. So that's really nice. But, um, as you grow, you know, yeah. the problems are different and bigger and more stressful, but we sell ice cream, mm-hmm. you know? And whenever I do feel stressed about this, I say, wow, I live in a, you know, pretty safe place yeah. where I have plenty of food and it's generally yeah. peaceful. There's a lot of happiness in your shops yeah. too. Um, how, where is your ice cream made? Is it made in one location or are you nationwide? Do you have multiple places? So we make about half of our ice cream at our own factory in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Huh. And the other half is co-manufactured at different factories around the country. I see. So you have like that co that co-manufacturing model around the world. Yes. And I would in 3 years ago if you would have asked me I, I would say Matt I'm going to build my own factory. Um Yeah. As I've learned more and as construction costs and the cost of materials have skyrocketed, the factory I'd want to build that would make sense for us would cost 150 million dollars right now, which Yeah. it, it is in no way possible for us yeah. to do so. Well, we're, credit we're markets tough to get money right now. Yeah. It's not easy. And we love co-manufacturing ice cream because it is, it's really easy to make good ice cream. Um, it's all about formula. Mm-hmm. Process is important, but it's objective. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if I was making like beer, wine, cheese, bread, you yeah. know, anything with fermentation, like you want to yeah. keep your hands on that. You know, right, you, right. You want to be a part of that process. Yeah, tasting every single batch. I mean, for ice cream, it's a little less. And yeah. also, it seems like agriculture is important. You're talking about the strawberries from Oregon that are ripened on the vine, but it is less important than some other pro- commercial products, right? Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about um, 
this shifting of tastes of ice cream and, and, and focusing a little bit more on like vegan ice cream. We've written about vegan ice cream as its own thing. Jordan Michaelman wrote a great piece, which I'll link to in the show notes. And I think vegan ice cream, I love it. Now, let me get your take on that. Now, first question is shifting tastes. And second question is vegan ice cream really a growing part of your biz? Not really. So the vegan ice cream market as a percentage of the entire tire as a percentage of the entire frozen dessert market is minuscule. I think it's like two to three and a half percent. Um, so it's growing, but you know, at this rate, it's going to be 6% in 15 years because vegan products outside of ice cream have absolutely blown up. There's a lot of new vegan CPG ice cream brands, yeah, a lot more than certainly than, you know, traditional dairy ice cream brands. So therefore, that, that's made it really hard for us to grow the vegan business because there's just so much competition. I mean, we are growing. Mm-hmm. We're expanding distribution. But vegan ice cream also sells much less. So the velocities are way ah, lower. So if we want to go that's into supermarket chain A and it costs $50,000 per SKU to go in, mm-hmm. maybe our turn is going to be, you know, hypothetically five turns per week on a dairy SKU. Mm-hmm. And two turns per week on a vegan skew. Mm. How are we going to pay back the 50 grand right, that we right. had to pay for slotting? So so we're still selling the vegan. We sell a lot of it in New York. We sell a lot of it in our scoop shops. But 10 years ago, I would have said, this is the future. We're going to sell. Interesting. We're going to be selling 50% vegan in 10 years. It's a really good um, insight into the business of ice cream and certainly revealing. Now, in terms of the changing of tastes and flavors, are we... And we're talking about dairy here. Is there like um, a growth opportunity, a spot that you're looking at? In terms of changing of taste. Like flavor profiles, like you think, I think our, our palates are getting more bitter. Personally, I think sweetness mm. is changing. That's my take. What do you think? Um, we have been thinking about the sugar thing in the last, so so we started with a really, really low sugar level because that's that was our personal preference. The market liked more, we added more. I think people are starting to appreciate less sugar. So in yeah. Japan, in Europe, Desserts will be less sweet. Um, I I really like that. I also like feel better after mm-hmm. I eat it. Um, ice cream's a little bit tricky because you yeah. need a certain level of sugar because it acts as an antifreeze and keeps it creamy. But we are experimenting with pulling back the sugar, particularly in our vegan. Mm. Um, we pulled back like ten percent two years ago. Now we think that's too much, so we've dialed it up. Yeah, we've like pushed it up a little bit, but yeah. we're still much lower there. What about just flavor profiles like, you know, the Negroni, Campari, Bitter, thinking mm. about that, thinking about um, the East Asia, thinking about rice, you know, you talk yeah. about the sake success. Is that a, is it a place you're talking about? South Asia, I mean, amazing flavor profiles in Yeah, India. I mean, what we, we've found that people at least that our customers and maybe the ice cream market, the mass ice cream market in America is not adventurous. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. My theory is that dessert is kind of bad for you, right? Mm. It's sugar, it's fat, it's yeah. ice cream. The know, modern perception of dessert is it's bad. And I think because it's not a utility, it's not a function mm. food, people don't want to take a risk. So they yeah. want to say, I want to be 100% sure that this is going to sate me in the way that I want it. So I want the cookies and cream. I want the peanut butter brownie. Therefore, it's been really challenging for us to sell, like even matcha, which I've tried to sell like 15 times, you know, in different forms in ice cream. And it just doesn't move. I find matcha to be like maybe the greatest ice cream flavor ever. Like it has that bitterness. It has a little bit of tannins that like cut. It's extremely dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, A a scoop of chocolate is you're going to have one 
taste and that's it. Right. Like that's it. One flavor is chocolate. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been hard for us. We still push them out as specials though. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, we're, we're working on a new R and D kitchen that's, um, customer facing in New York city and the hope nice. is to do like 10 or 15 new flavors every week. Where's that going to be? Where's the location? Um, we haven't found it yet. Oh, you're looking yeah. for it. Brooklyn or Manhattan? Where um, are you looking? Manhattan. Oh, so, uh, nice, nice, nice. I can't wait to go. I love that idea. I love that you would have like an R&D with 15 scoops. Oh, that's fun. Um, 2008, 2009, I was reminded we had a guest on just before this recording. You had a beef with waffles and dinges on like the internet, on like eater. Like you you look, you know, I mean, you're looking at like, I don't remember. I mean, listen, this is a long time ago. I actually didn't remember this. What went down? No, I remember it perfectly. So (laughs) one of my best friends who I grew up with, Dan Suarez, who now has Suarez Family Brewery, an incredible brewery upstate. Oh yeah, sure. He actually helped us start Van Leeuwen year Mm. one. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but he was parked in front of Trader Joe's one day and Thomas from Waffles, if I remember correctly, I think he usually parked there. Oh, I see. um, He sort of started yelling at Dan and then texted me and it it wasn't that big of a deal. And Thomas Thomas and I are super friendly now. I bet you are. And it seems like something like 2009 Eater would have been all about. Yeah. That's really funny. But yeah, the the beef has been squashed. Yeah, totally. (laughs) That's fun. I mean, do you miss those early, those scrappy days uh, when you were just doing the trucks? And, oh, my and, gosh. Yeah, I mean, I was 24 years yeah. old, so I had a different kind of energy. Um, life was simple. You know, I yeah. got to the truck at 10 a.m. every day, sold ice cream till midnight, you know, Damn. drove back to Brooklyn, got a falafel at Oasis, <laughs> went to bed and did it again. It was yeah. really, it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> did, no. and, and entered everything into QuickBooks once a month. And that, that was the business. Yeah, yeah. One bank account probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... You know, sim- our, our, our cash flow forecasting was, well, this is how much we have in the bank today. Yeah. <laughs> is this going to work? <laughs> I mean, many entrepreneurs listening to the show, that's the reality now. And it sometimes that's even better than being big, but there's pros and cons. Um so ice cream is your passion. It's obvious. We haven't talked about any like brand extension, but where, what's the natural next progression if there is one for your brand? Do you do a different category completely? Are you a, you're not really a lifestyle brand. I don't mm-hmm. think of Van Leeuwen as like, you know, Peloton crossovers or anything like that. Um, we don't know what the next, what, what, if, if, if there was a line extension, we don't know what it is. Um, yeah. What we've learned yeah. is that our preference and what we like isn't necessarily marketable. Um, I would would like to (laughs) find... It's honest. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would like to find obscure, really awesome ingredients from all over the world and convince people why the pistachios, not only from Bronte, but the ones Mm. from Bronte grown on the volcano, not in the valley, Mm. are even better and you should pay 30% more for them. Oh, man, you watch White Lotus? Sounds like that's a a White Lotus reference. Yeah, (laughs) and and, and most people don't care about that. Um, And that's okay, you know? And and so we're sort of trying to figure out what we're good at and how that can be applied to scaling, you know, different kinds of products. Um, But right now... I mean, we love making ice cream. We love, we love, I love selling ice cream in the stores. That's my far and away. My favorite part of the business is working in the stores, scooping, talking to people. Like that's why I got into the food business. I do, I do love cooking and creating, but the hospitality front of house aspect is where like I'm happiest. That's really candid. I appreciate you not giving me some line that you're going to try to yeah. do this or that. I mean, I, I would like to start a, you know, a chocolate label, sure. a vodka label, a beer label. Like I'm excited about all Definitely, those things. Definitely, of course. Um, but yeah, but also ice cream, I don't think 
or I won't say I don't think, there is not a harder CPG product to sell than ice cream. I mean, the supply chain is the most expensive by far. Um, The margins are minuscule just because of the perception. Like, you can't charge $12 for a pint of ice cream. That would be insane. Yet, like, a chocolate bar, which is, you know, a fifth the weight and only needs refrigerated shipping for half the year, half the year it can be ambient. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's ambient. That's the Fuel costs increasing just absolutely crush your So so what excites me is ambient products that have a really high unit cost. Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of uh, professionals in the coffee industry and it seems it's very echoing you hmm. in terms of just like supply chain and costs and just like perception. You yeah. can't charge enough for it. You just can't. You right. can't charge enough for ice cream either. And then there's the consumer perception, which I agree yeah. with, you know, and Whole Foods right now, our ice cream's eight fifty a pint. It's a lot of money. Um, or is it now? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I, I feel like the pint... At least in Brooklyn, it ranges from it goes up to twelve, and I think people are willing to pay for it. But like yeah. right now, yeah, you can't charge. You can't pay ten. Charge ten dollars. Well, one cool thing is we're four ninety eight in Walmart. See, that's awesome. Um, same exact. Pro- well, different. Actually, unique SKUs. We're yeah. actually making them all in Brooklyn. Cool. Um, these s- s- not small runs, but one off runs. Um, and that was really exciting for us. Um, people said Walmart. You're gonna go to Walmart. You know that's bad for the brand. I'm like. We want to make good ice cream for everybody. Yeah. Like, why? Those people who said it's bad for the brand don't know anything about brands. (laughs) Get into Walmart. It's pretty good. Yeah. And your packaging is dope too. Like, how how much do you work on the actual color of each flavor? Um, For the packaging? Yeah. Well, we, about seven seven or eight years ago, we were working on packaging in house and we had a vision, but we couldn't execute it because we're not packaging yeah. designers. So we went to Pentagram, a really oh, awesome right. branding agency. Sweet. We worked with Natasha Jen there for about six months developing a design language yeah. that like genuinely reflected what we wanted to do. So the sort of subtle pastel colors, yeah. the front of the pint, which doesn't have many attributes, was sort of us because we wanted it to be a timeless product. And we wanted to the the sort of manipulation was can we make Van Leeuwen just look so fancy mm. that it communicates as high end mm. rather than saying all this stuff on the front of the packaging about it and then you eat it and you say okay this is good sort of in the way that like if you go to a pretty good restaurant in California they'll yeah. say the farms on the menu yeah. if you go to three Michelin star restaurant they don't say anything nah you know you what just, you're getting well you better be getting it from no, the best it's, farms no it's a good right? point do people recognize your name when you're at the bank, when you're at the gym, when you're at, when they see your name? Uh, sometimes like, yeah. yeah, in certainly in restaurants in New York, which is cool because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to be recognized. We've been working so hard in the food sure. and, and I love being recognized in, yeah. in our industry, Definitely. But, but that was a change. Like we grew a lot in the last four years. So I've seen the, the brand become much more famous in the last it's like, a cool it's it's years. a cool brand i i i love haagen that is my in terms of the mass it's it's like my number one what do you think about that brand is it a north star of sorts yeah i mean when we started i said oh my gosh could we make a vanilla as good as haagen no i'm not saying this out of like pride but <laughs> no. i think our vanilla is i mean it's it's just higher fat it's higher eggs. Yeah. i like it more now but I love Hagen Dazs. Um, I eat Hagen Dazs. I love that they're a clean label. Yeah. So like I think us, a lot of the no brands, stabilizers. Yeah, I think the, a lot the, of the, the same. The difference to plug us is the solids thing. So we're about fifteen percent higher in solids than them. We're getting off that off fat and egg, off cream and eggs. Mm. Very fascinating. Hey, uh, so 
we ask all guests on today's podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money. Ben, what would that be? I know you've written a book as well, so let's. what's the next one? It would be a vegetarian-ish yeah. cookbook, you know, that made health, you know, that had a lot of healthy food. This sounds so boring, but like healthy food recipes that were fairly easy to make. Yeah. Um, Because I think that could make people feel better. And then the other part of it would be like interspersed with stories about how different ingredients were like, have been cultivated by humans over time. Oh, so yeah. Like, where like is broccoli that. native to? What yeah. did these sort of totally wild broccoli have in terms of like nutrient value that this one doesn't? Can you get those seeds? Can you grow that? Can you try that? I love um, that. And then just also like the history of food. I, I find the idea of like authenticity in food to be kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Like authenticity, like yeah. stuff has been traded for the last 50,000 yeah. years. It's a challenging And, and you know, I remember learning like, wait, tomatoes are from the new world, but tomatoes are Italian food. You know, yeah. chilies are from the new world, but Southeast Asian food and Indian food aren't those without that. Yeah. Um so, yeah, sort of explore those things. Cool. I love it. Ben Van Leeuwen, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much, man. Shalia Harris joins us on the podcast. What's up, Shalia? Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Hey, good. I, now, we've been chit-chatting off mic, and I wanted to, like, get you on mic and talk about this journey that started at a meat market in Harlem sometime around the holidays, this this recipe journey of yours. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, if I'm being honest about it, I actually think it's a journey that started maybe closer to a decade ago as it's been something that I've been thinking about for a long time and wanting to sort of recreate as this, this really fond dish from my childhood. Um, and for whatever reason, last year was the year that I was like, I'm actually finally going to learn how to do this. So the thing that I've been teaching myself to make is called mchuzi wanyama. And essentially what that translates to in my very bad Swahili is it's a meat curry or stew. Um, And I experimented a little bit with mutton and lamb Mm. and other versions, but I've been using a lot of goat uh, most recently. Um, And you can really use kind of any meat as the base and sort of build from there. Cool. So we'll get into the flavor profile and and how you build the flavors of the stew. But first, uh, shopping for goat can be um, tricky for some. I, I feel like it's a wonderful protein that is widely available, high in, high in like, protein and and something that is used around the world and sometimes found on restaurant menus sometimes right but it's like a little underutilized in the mainstream right would you would you say it's it's underrated protein absolutely um and you know it's funny because it's like you'll there's certain cultures where it's so prevalent like you know i can there's not a Jamaican restaurant that I can go to in New York City where you can't find, like, for instance, like curried goat, Cur- goat and curry, rice and right. peas on yeah. a menu. But it's like then you go outside of that, and then I think it becomes really hard to find. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, Jamaican goat curry is. I mean, it is nothing better um, in New York City, especially in Brooklyn. You'll find some spots there. Uh, do you have any spots you find it? Let's just go there. Any good any good goat curry spots? Putting you on the spot. I know this is off off our off our outline. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's something I um, grew up with and I'm always in search of uh, new places. So if you have anything, please let me know. Um, I live in Harlem currently, so I uh, 
spent a lot of time at either King Barca I've gotten there, uh, mm. curried goat and rice and peas, which I love, and their oxtails. Um, and then also there's a place called Kingston that I've been to yeah. as well. Cool. Now let's talk about buying goat in the market raw when you're going to use it as ingredient. How are you looking at goat and how are you how are you actually ordering it at the, at the meat counter? So it was a bit of a funny experience uh, walking into this meat market, uh, Casablanca meat market on 110th in Harlem. If you've not been, they're excellent. Mm. Um, so you walk in and it's a very typical butcher. You know, you have like every single cut you could possibly think of like beef and chicken and pork and lamb. And so I'm standing in line like trying to search for it or figure this out because I sort of get this thing where I get like, you know, like I have to have like a speech prepared or something when I'm like doing something new. So someone comes out from the back room to talk to me and he's like, you know, like, what are you looking for? And for some reason, I start whispering like it's like this like clandestine transaction. Like, do you got the stuff? And he just very normally answers me. And he's like, yes, we have goat. Like, we I have, have the cabrito. We have the cabrito. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was like, yes, what do you need? And so I start, um, you know, telling him what I'm trying to do. And he suggests the best thing would be for me to get a whole neck and shoulder. So he shows me the cut. Um, he shows me the cut, and he like cuts it into like stew pieces for me. Oh, cool. um, yeah, and I so I walk out with about I want to say two two and a half pounds, and they were like eight ninety nine a pound, and it was like the simple, most simple, best experience. Yeah, I mean w- when they cut it for you, that's that's pretty bomb. And so you get to your kitchen, and you're thinking back to your childhood, and you're thinking about this recipe. Let's let's talk about what what goes into this recipe. And but first, why why do you like this recipe? What what made you what made you think about it over the holidays? So I think it's something that I'm always intermittently thinking about. Um, and so I should explain. I'm originally from New England, born and raised in Massachusetts, um, and I have a lot of like southern roots. Like my dad is from the Mississippi Delta area, kind of like equidistant between uh, Jackson and Memphis. And my mom's from, or her family's from southwestern Georgia. But growing up, because of my mom's job, uh, we spent a while traveling back and forth to Tanzania and specifically the city in northeastern Tanzania called Arusha. Arusha is kind of this tourist hub because it's situated um, very close to the Ngorogoro Crater, to Kilimanjaro, to the Serengeti. So there's like a lot of like international traffic um, in and out, and we were there for a couple of years. So my mother taught at this local university, and my father and I would travel uh, with her, and I do school remotely. I have really strong memories of traveling to Zanzibar, for example, and eating the food and going to all of these museums um, that sort of bear witness to the slave trade in that area and, you know, conservation areas and, like, mm-hmm. seeing, like, lions and giraffes and elephants and, you know, which is, like, sort of like a fairy tale for, like, a little kid. But I also have all of these really strong core memories of the food. And I remember specifically having this affinity for Ugali, Um, And so essentially what ugali is, it's a swallow food. So swallow foods are either grains or vegetables that you pound into doughs and they're eaten alongside curries and stews and soups. Or if you are me and just obsessed with starches, sometimes you just eat it by itself. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so it's in the same family as think of like Fufu and Sima and Pop. And I know that other cultures also have like, you know, strong histories of swallow foods too. Um, but instead of being made with like cassava or pounded yam or plantain, uh, ugali is made with like a very, very fine ground uh, cornmeal. And you sort of boil it in water until it forms that like starchy dough, which you then like take, you know, rolled balls of and dip into different foods like this, you know, stew that I'm talking about. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a food that is meant to stretch the week, right? It's meant to preserve um, a a small amount of protein and and stretch it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so for the longest time, I it was this thing that I like sort of like talked wistfully about with my mom and then again just try uh, wanted to try to figure out how to make it on my own. So let's go into that. How did you make this dish and and really did you pick it up right away? Like did it, re- did it remind you of childhood? It's funny. So the basic preparation of this dish, I'll just like give you like a base level. Mm-hmm. It's like what you're going to what you do is you boil that, you know, goat or whatever meat you bought with ginger and garlic paste and salt until it's like super, super, super tender, like fall off the bone tender. And then at the same time you're doing that, you're going to make like your tomato base, which is going to involve like sauteing onions and then adding in like tomato paste and blanched diced tomatoes until they break down and mixing that with like a curry masala. Mm, and nice. Yeah. Curry. Yeah. Ma- so it's a, it's a masala. That's like the real yes. spice drive yes. there. Cool. Yes. Um, so that's kind of, there's like variations on the recipe, but that seems to be very consistent. Um, and so after, at that point, that's when you're going to add in your meat, you're going to add in your stock, you're going to, and then you're going to add in your vegetables, um, which is the part that I think is really interesting because as with most stews, it's kind of a choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. and you can sort of start to, uh, you know, iterate on it in that way. Then at that point is when you begin adding like your meat and your potatoes and your stock and your vegetables. Um, And that's the part that gets really interesting to me because as with most stews, it's kind of a choose your own adventure with different um, spices and add-ons. And for instance, like I haven't seen this in any particular recipe, but as I've done it a few times now, I've taken to adding a couple of pinches of brown sugar nice, uh, to sort of like measure out or to balance out that like lemon and tomato and the acid um and i've also a lot of recipes call for like the like maggie seasoning either the cubes or the liquid um which i've had a hard time finding so i've swapped and started using liquid aminos but still getting that kind of umami in it there. sounds great i mean it reminds me of like a caramel chicken or like a caramel fish especially in like vietnamese style um using fish sauce instead of a maggie absolutely it feels like there's a little bit of of that technique happening here absolutely sounds absolutely. like delicious to put the, the brown sugar in there mm, like that yeah and then uh you know there's also other things like there is a uh, an african like spice or sauce mix called pili pili and that involves like chili peppers habanero garlic and olive oil you know and so at that point once you have like your finished plate um you know pour yourself a bowl of this stew and your ugali which you've been making on the side which is sort of like rolled into these like smaller manageable balls and you Mm -hmm. sort of take pieces of that and dip into um Dip into your meat and stew, et cetera. Amazing. I mean, dipping 
breads into into stewy things. There's nothing better. Truly nothing better. What more uh, do you want? I mean, what, what more do you want? And in all cultures, I feel there's a bread plus stew plus sauce um, item. Now, you have drawn some conclusions here. We were talking off mic a little bit about this, but I wanted you to clarify. You were thinking that maybe this dish has a connection to your your parents' heritage as well. Sure. Um, yeah, so in researching this dish and trying to get better at it and find, you know, my version of it, um, I've been following and learning from, you know, a couple of different channels. There's one I love called Aroma of Zanzibar or mm-hmm. Miss Masao or Mili Chevy. Um, and so I think one of the things that I found interesting is that the way that it was prepped was with like a lot of vegetables and techniques that I was already familiar with. So for example, one of the channels I was watching um, was using a lot of a vegetable that they were calling bamia. And they were talking about slicing it up and sort of like placing it in your stew and letting, you know, that vegetable um, thicken your stew and letting the insides thicken the stew. And so I was watching it and I just had this moment where I was kind of just like, wait a minute, that's Mm. okra. Like, I know what that is. (laughs) And I know, you know, how to cut that up and use that in that same way in which you would do like, for instance, a gumbo you know, has a very similar preparation where you're Mm -hmm. using okra in that way as a thickening agent. And, you know, or other things, you know, if you're talking about, like, the way that you're slicing okra or, you know, cutting it down just enough so, you know, that you're not, you know, you're, it's not ending up too gooey or slimy or et cetera. And so I was watching this woman sort of explain these things. And I was just having all of these flashbacks of, like, growing up in my grandmother's kitchen and my aunt's kitchen and remembering like the way that they would cut up these pods, um, you know, in a very similar fashion for, you know, foods from our cultural heritage. And I think in that is like where I really found the passion for um, creating some of these dishes because I found these really strong links and parallels to this culture and this tradition that I grew up um, cooking with you know, by way of the African diaspora. And so it was like I was cooking this thing, you know, that I've I've eaten a million times before but never prepared, but I still found this sense of, like, hmm. comfort and hominess in it, you know, in the midst of trying something new. It's amazing how familiarity will, will have will, – will, will bring back the memories of that are locked away. I think a lot of foods do that, and many of our listeners will relate to that. Foods that they maybe thought they'd never have again. They, they, they smell the first whiff of it, and it's like memory, memory, memory. So, Shalia, what's next in your, on your East African cooking journey, or just what, what are you going to be cooking soon? So I think along those same lines, I'm really interested, um, you know, in these sort of like East African dishes um, that, you know, I find sort of a connection to. There's a really popular dish in Tanzania called skuma wiki, and I did not know this until recently, but its literal transition means to push the weak or stretch the weak. And essentially what it is is braised collard greens, onions, tomatoes with, like, small pieces of meat in it. And so it's something that is just so familiar to Southern and especially, you know, like, soul tradition 
I think that's something I'm going to be playing around with and trying to explore both those similarities and the way that it differs. I think really more largely something that has been impressed on me through my food and my heritage, um, you know, is that there are these links, these connections, these foods that come from somewhere. They have Mm -hmm. a greater history and a more global context. And I think lately cooking these foods feels like a way for me to honor that history. And that's something I want to keep exploring. Shalia Harris, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.